Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back in the Word of God with you once again. In Daniel 2, good old King Nebuchadnezzar kept having the same dream night after night. The dream had a statue that represented the different empires that would rule over the nation of Israel. And now as we crack open the pages of the third chapter of Daniel, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, he completely missed the boat. He completely missed what God was trying to communicate to him. The pride of man led Nebuchadnezzar down a path that would take him to another direct confrontation with the God of Israel. Let's look at our text, Daniel 3, and we start with verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at that time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, or worship the gold image which I have set up. Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, 
and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Lucy and Larry Parker wrote a book titled, We Let Our Son Die. In the book, they told the tragic story of a misguided faith. In painful detail, Larry and his wife paint a picture of how they had come to believe that if they just had enough faith, God would heal their diabetic son. Well, eventually their son Wesley got pretty sick and needed insulin. Believing that God would heal their son Wesley, they withheld the insulin, and predictably Wesley went into a diabetic coma. The Parkers were warned by many about how wrong it was for Christians to not have enough faith. So they believed that God would heal Wesley. Well, unfortunately, Wesley died. But even after Wesley's death, the Parkers, undaunted in their faith, they held a resurrection service rather than a funeral service. In fact, for more than a year following his death, they refused to abandon their faith that Wesley, like Jesus, would rise from the dead. Eventually, both Larry and Lucy were tried and convicted of both manslaughter and child abuse. A tragic story? Yes. But even more tragic is the great number, the countless stories that could be painfully told, and in each case, the lesson is the same, a flawed concept of faith that inevitably leads to a shipwreck, sometimes spiritually, sometimes physically, or worse yet, is that sometimes it leads to a shipwreck both physically and spiritually. See, the problem is many Christians believe that the Bible teaches that faith is confidence in a certain outcome. Christians look at the miraculous way God worked in the Bible and say, look at the great faith of those men and women in the Bible. Look at what happened because of their unwavering confidence in a certain outcome. And if this is your entire view of what faith is, then Daniel 3 is probably going to disturb you. Because what we are about to see is that for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did not pretend to know what was going to happen to them. Surely they had no desire to burn, but they did not claim that they would not die. These three men had biblical faith. And as we chart our course through Daniel chapter 3, our goal is to really examine what is a biblical description of faith. Let's take another look at our first verse. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. You have to view chapter 3 in light of chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar repeatedly had this dream of a statue with a head of gold. Daniel tells him that the head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar as the king of the Babylonian empire. And you get to chapter 3, and now Nebuchadnezzar is making an image, not just the head, but the entire image was made of gold. And between chapters 2 and 3, there's a break in the text. At least a couple of years have gone by. So chapter 3 happens sometime later. We're not exactly sure when. But what I find interesting is that in chapters 1 and 2, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are listed as Daniel's friends. But in chapter 3, Daniel isn't mentioned at all. We have no idea where Daniel was because the text doesn't tell us. But for some reason, it does not seem that Daniel was there. And chapter 3 is the last time that we will actually hear from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So try to remember that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't doing anything all that out of the ordinary. Today, if you go home and erect a big statue in your front yard, some of your neighbors will complain. The ancient rulers loved to do this. They would make a statue of themselves. This was very common because it was designed to display their power and their control over the nation. 
They would build these statues and have inscribed on them stories about the nations that they conquered, stories about the king's great accomplishments, to be a testimony to the people of their power, their greatness as a ruler. This was the propaganda of their day. You know, today we have TV and YouTube, but in that day, this was the type of thing that built patriotism. Keep in mind that not all that long before this, Nebuchadnezzar had taken over Assyria. So this was another way of gathering together all the leaders of this land, including the land of the Assyrians, and demanding from them an act of loyalty. Building a statue like this was never something you did to express how humble you were. 60 cubits high is about 90 feet, and 6 cubits wide is about 9 feet wide. So it was about the height of an 8-story building, and it was tall and skinny. Remember, this was meant to be impressive, so the bigger the better. And 90 feet high is pretty big. The text states here that it was an image of gold, most likely because of the size and weight of it. It was probably gold-plated. This was a common building technique in the Babylonian Empire. They would build a wood frame underneath and cover it with gold. After seeing the dream in chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar is the head of the statue represented by gold, and then he was told later on that other nations would follow him, it's not that hard to imagine that Nebuchadnezzar did not want just a head of gold on the statue. He made this entire thing gold. It's possible that Nebuchadnezzar might have been trying to say, my kingdom is never going to end. Nebuchadnezzar built this image to represent the world power that he had built and to honor the Babylonian gods whom he had thought had given him his power. There's no doubt that he got the idea for his image from the statue in the dream of chapter 2. And making the entire image of gold was an expression of rebellion against God's revelation. Through this image of gold, the king was saying, I don't care what the God of heaven has said. My kingdom, my kingdom of Babylon will not fall to another Gentile kingdom. It will rule through the times of the Gentiles. Even if this statue was just gold on the outside, this thing still would have been an expensive project. The text tells us in verse 1 that it was an image. It doesn't really tell us what the statue was an image of. The wording that is used here in the original language uses a very general term, not really indicating what the statue looked like. The latter half of verse 1 states that the statue was set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now the Aramaic word Dura, it was a common word for any place that was enclosed by mountains or by walls. The reference to the province of Babylon, this is another important detail because this tells us that this took place somewhere pretty close to the actual city of Babylon, which is where Nebuchadnezzar controlled the empire from. But listen to this. Here is where biblical archaeology pays off. Archaeologists have uncovered a large square made of brick. It's 45 feet wide on each side and it's 20 feet high. It was found about six miles southeast of Babylon. Now, can I stand here and tell you that for certain this is the base of this statue? No, I cannot, but it certainly could be. Close by is the River Dura, and the base of the platform that they found is in the middle of a wide open plain, meaning that the land around it is completely flat. If this is the base of the statue in Daniel 3, this would have made the statue able to be seen from great distances in every direction. Take another look at verses 2 and 3. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, 
the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now the bottom line here is that Nebuchadnezzar gathered together all the officials. And notice in verse 2, the text states that he sent word to gather. This wasn't an overnight gathering. This was a big event that took time to organize. It took time for word to reach all the officials throughout the land so that they could travel to this site just to dedicate this statue. Nebuchadnezzar sent word throughout the empire to have the leaders gather. And as you look at this list of government officials, when Daniel wrote this, he wrote the titles of the officials with the highest rank first, ending with the lower ranking officials. The satraps, they were the representatives of the regions. The administrators might have been the military commanders. The governors were civil administrators or men in charge of subdivisions within the provinces. Counselors were probably the advisors. They were the people that would give advice to the government officials. The treasurers took care of the finances for the kingdom. The judges administered the laws. The magistrates, they were the people that sentenced and enforced the punishment of those that broke the law. And the last group mentioned all the officials of the provinces. These were the people that assisted the satraps in ruling over the provinces. Basically, almost anyone who served the king in any official capacity was gathered on that day. It had to be an amazing sight to see all these leaders of this great empire, to see them all come together to pledge their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. It must have been just an awesome sight. Some of these different government officers might have been in uniform. This was a big event, and there was probably hundreds of government officials gathered together. In verse 3, the officials were still standing, but take a look at what happened starting in verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud to you, it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All these officials from different regions of the empire were still standing. Then in verse 4, the command is given. The text states that the herald cried aloud. The wording literally means here with strength or with power. And in verse 4, the herald uses three phrases to address the people, O peoples, nations, and languages. Nebuchadnezzar and his father had conquered quite a few nations, and so this gigantic empire had people that spoke different languages. This official herald of the king tells this large gathering of officials the instructions, so there was absolutely no misunderstanding of what was expected. When the music started, When this orchestra started playing, which included horns, flutes, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, the text tells us, when that music kicked in, they were all to fall down and worship this image. Now try to think of what this all meant for these officials being commanded to not only fall down, but they were commanded to worship. It shows two things, really. First, Nebuchadnezzar was making them show their allegiance to both him and his empire. And secondly, the fact that he made them worship the image, it shows that he was also setting himself up as the leader of a new form of religious worship. He was really telling the people that not only was he the political leader, but he was their religious leader as well. 
It was a way of telling the leaders of the empire that their devotion to the pagan gods of the empire could be seen by their devotion to worshiping this image. So picture this day. This large image is all polished up. All the government officials are gathered together. The orchestra is there. In verse 6, we see that the punishment for anyone failing to bow down and worship the image, they were to be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Try to remember that Nebuchadnezzar was not saying that this image was the only thing the people could worship. The Babylonians worshipped many gods. But Nebuchadnezzar was saying, out of all the gods that you worship, if you want to live, well, this image better be one of them. If you refuse to pay your respects, if you refuse to worship the gods of the kingdom, it was regarded as an act of hostility against both the king and the kingdom. And this is why the punishment was so harsh. You could still worship any god you wanted, but you had to worship the god that represented the Babylonian kingdom. And so think of it this way. If the Jews refused to worship this image for Nebuchadnezzar, he would have seen this and understood this as direct opposition to his kingdom. Now, we don't know a lot about the type of furnace that was used, but the text seems to suggest that it had a large opening on the top for placing things, or people in this case, into the furnace, and some kind of opening on the side for getting things out. Some scholars suggest that because this was several miles outside of Babylon, that a furnace was probably actually built on site. Keep in mind that outside the city of Babylon, they had these huge kilns for baking bricks for the different building projects. And some of these kilns have been found by archaeologists. So it would not be hard to imagine that this furnace was one of these kilns. Now we have historical records that tell us throwing people into a furnace as punishment was nothing new for the Babylonians. And this is something that the Word of God itself actually testifies of. Listen to Jeremiah 29, verse 22. And because of them, a curse shall be taken up by all the captivity of Judah, who are in Babylon, saying, The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Listen to that last part again. Whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. So think of what is going on in this text. The leaders from every part of the empire, they see this huge statue. They see the large crowd gathered. They hear the punishment for failing to do this would be death. They hear the large orchestra play. The result is in verse 7. The text tells us that all the people fell down and worshipped the golden image. And I don't know about you, but every time I read this passage, my mind goes right to the tribulation, where we see in Revelation 13 that the Antichrist will command everyone to worship him and his image. But think of the situation for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If they worshipped the image, they would have violated the commandments of God. So think of what they did when the signal was given and when everyone else fell down and worshipped the image. These three young Jewish men continued to stand. Pick up the text again with verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So verse 8 starts out by telling us that some of the Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. 
Think back to chapter 2. The Chaldeans were part of a group of advisors to the king who absolutely could not interpret the dream. So along came Daniel, who correctly interpreted the dream. The king promoted Daniel and his three friends. And the text does not come out and directly tell us this, but you get the impression that these Chaldeans were hanging back and waiting, filled with envy. They were waiting for an opportunity to strike back at Daniel or these three men. Think of the mindset. These dirty, rotten Jews were taken captive. They were supposed to be servants, not rulers. But here is Daniel and his three friends who had strong positions of leadership in the empire. You can just imagine that these men, the Chaldeans and the other advisors to the king, they were jealous. And they were just waiting for an opportunity to get back at the Jews. And their refusal to worship this image was the opportunity that they were waiting for. So they go to the king and first in verse 9, we see that they gave the king the customary greeting. Then they explained to Nebuchadnezzar that three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three men did not bow and worship the gold image. It's interesting because the text doesn't tell us when these guys decided not to bow down to the image, but they must have known it was coming. It would have been interesting to hear their conversation. But put yourself in their shoes in a situation like this because there's a powerful application for the church. The greatest crime, according to the world, is to not conform. Yet, this is exactly what God expects of us when the things of the world are lined up against the things of God. This is precisely what Paul wrote about in Romans 12, where he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Verse 12 gives us here the idea that the Chaldeans knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they knew that the king had set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. It's pretty clear in the language used that the Chaldeans referred to them as Jews. Now, you have to remember something here. You have to remember that in the Old Testament, the word Jew is usually meant as a put-down. The enemies of the Hebrew people would use the expression Jew as a cutting remark. In other words, this was an insult. Like they were saying, King, it was those Jews. It was those Jews that disobeyed you. In verse 12, with the latter part of the verse, we see that these Chaldeans knew how to push the king's buttons. What did they do? They made it personal. These Jews don't pay respect to you, King. They don't serve your gods. Pay close attention to their wording. There was some truth in what they were saying, but they were also adding some things. They were stretching things a little bit. All that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had done was simply not worship this image. So their last statement was true. These three men did not worship the image. And the Chaldeans correctly got the idea from this that these men didn't worship the gods of Babylon. They probably had gained a reputation by this time for being a part of the group of Jews that didn't worship the gods of Babylon. But to say that these men had no regard for the king, well, this was just a flat-out lie. Because according to everything we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they obeyed the king and served him as much as they could. But these Chaldeans made it sound like they had no respect for the king. You know, Solomon had it right when he testified that there is nothing new under the sun because this is exactly what men do today, mixing the truth with lies when they try to take down an enemy. Notice the reaction of how Nebuchadnezzar takes this, starting with verse 13. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Notice how verse 13 starts out. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury. Nebuchadnezzar was not a happy camper. I'm thinking maybe he didn't actually think that anyone would dare to disobey him. You know, he brought these people from all parts of the kingdom. He went through the trouble and great expense of having this statue made. He got the orchestra ready, threatens the people with death. And then three men, men that he had promoted, dared to defy him. In verse 13, he orders that these three be brought before him. And in verse 14, we see that the king gives them an opportunity to respond. He asked them if they would not serve his gods or worship the golden image. Notice that wording, serve my gods. Worship the gold image which I have set up. In verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar now gives them another chance to bow before the image. If they bowed, it would either show that the charges against them were false or that they had changed their minds. So the music was going to play again, and they would have another chance. Look at the last half of verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar tells them, but if you do not worship, you will immediately, right then and there, they would be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Then look at the arrogance in the last phrase in verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? What was Nebuchadnezzar really doing at this point? Once again, he was stressing that he was the authority figure. As king, he wanted to be seen as the political leader and the religious leader. But what he really did was make this an issue between himself and God. The three men, they were just pawns that were in the middle of a battle between Nebuchadnezzar and God. Nebuchadnezzar was challenging their God, the same God that had revealed the dream and its meaning to Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar knew who they were, and he was trying to show that the gods of Babylon were more powerful than their God. He kept it simple, bow or be thrown into the furnace. And if I throw you into the furnace and let us see your God take care of you, it is never wise to challenge the God of the Bible. Look down at verse 16. They replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Don't make the mistake here of thinking they were trying to be disrespectful. They were just testifying that they did not even need any time to reconsider. Their path was clear. Their obedience to God came first. They had confidence in their decision. I hope we have this type of immediate confidence in God when we are faced with temptation. Think of the courage this must have took in verse 17 where they told the king that if God wanted to, he could have easily delivered them from the fiery furnace. Really, they were witnessing to King Nebuchadnezzar, telling good old King Nebuchadnezzar about the sovereignty and the power of the God of the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar had asked, 
what God could deliver them. And they responded by saying, ours. They answered, letting the king know that the God that they served, the one true God, he was greater than the king and could deliver them if he wanted to. Notice the lesson here. But even if he didn't, even if God chose not to deliver them, look at the wording in verse 18. They said to the king with some powerful words, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. The choice was absolutely clear. They were choosing to trust in God. And even if God did not deliver them, they would still only worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 16 and verse 17 shows us their faith. And verse 18 goes one step further. It shows us their submission, their submission to the will of God. If for some reason, if it was a part of God's plan to have them die by burning in a fire, so be it. They were still faithful to the one true God of Israel. Are you at that point in your faith that you are faithful to God no matter what? Jesus himself testified in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Being thrown into a furnace was not what they wanted. It didn't seem like the best plan to them. But if that was God's plan, they had peace with it and confidence in God. These men were fully resigned to the will of God in their life. They remind us of the words of Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego loved Yahweh more than life itself. They made him the absolute center of their lives. They had their faith grounded in God, in who God is, and not just in what he could do for them. A man by the name of Jim Conway was the pastor of a church in Urbana, Illinois. Just a few years back, his daughter Becky came down with cancer. The doctors told him that the only way to save her life was by amputating her leg that was filled with cancer. Family began to pray, asking God to heal Becky's leg. They knew that God is able to heal, and so they prayed that he would save her leg as a testimony of his love. Because they sincerely desired that God would be glorified, they believed that God would heal Becky. Jim felt so strong that God would honor the request that on the day of the scheduled surgery, he asked the doctors to test Becky's leg again before they amputated. The surgeon agreed. The family went to a waiting room, eagerly awaiting the results that they were sure would bring great glory to God and great joy to them. Jim later wrote about what happened next. Jim said, a crowd of friends from the church had come to wait with us. So many came, in fact, they made us leave the waiting room. When the surgeon came out, I knew what he was going to say, and I couldn't face it. I couldn't face my friends. So I ran. I ran to the hospital basement where no one could find me, and I cried. I yelled. I pounded my fists against the wall. I felt like the God whom I had served had abandoned me. At the hour of my deepest need, was he so busy answering prayers for parking spaces? that he couldn't see Becky. This experience devastated Jim, but it also drove him back to the scriptures. There he discovered the problem in a faith that blindly insists on what we would love to happen, even if what we want would seem to honor God. This is not the faith that we are called to in the word of God. All you have to do is look to Hebrews 11 at the hall of faith to learn that things did not always work out the way that God's people wanted. Faith is not trust in what we want to happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not have a faith that said God should act in a certain way. 
faith is not trust in our own belief, or in other words, faith is not faith in faith. Oftentimes, Christians link the effectiveness of their faith with how strongly they convince themselves that there will be a positive outcome to a particular situation. But that is not faith either. That is not trust in God's wisdom and power. Instead, it is simply confidence in the amount of belief that they have conjured up in an attempt to control Him. Faith is trust in God. Great faith does not claim to know what only God can know. Faith claims only to know the God who knows. The faith that we are called to lets God be God. It does not depend upon our efforts or our view of what God should or should not do. It is simply resting upon the truth that God is God and we can trust him no matter what. The truest test of your faith is when God's answer is no, when there is no healing, when there is no rescue from your situation, when the house forecloses, when you lose your job, when your loved one never recovers, and all the while you have been doing what is right, honestly trying to live a life that honors God. You don't have to be a Christian very long before you will find yourself in a tough, difficult, and maybe even a heart-wrenching situation. And even though you may pour out your heart to God in prayer, heaven seems to remain silent because God's answer is no. This is the greatest test. Is your faith still in God when the answer is no, when there is no miracle? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, but if not, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up, because they understood that faith is trust in God alone. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.